season of resurrection and ascension knowing that you are praying for us right now. And as we seek to know you and follow you in our day, as we look at Matthew's manual of ministry, may you be glorified in us, in our ministry this day and this, this uh, end of Easter season and ascension going into Pentecost and Trinity season so that, Lord, we would look back knowing you're with us. And so, Lord, think our thoughts. May my words be yours. Take our wills and bend them to your own and take each and every one of our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. It was a classic movie. John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd playing Jake and Elwood Blues walk into a church where Pastor James Brown, the Lord spoke to them to reassemble the band. And throughout Chicago and the whole movie, you couldn't talk them out of it. Why? Because we were on a mission by God, you know, in his Chicago accent that Dan Aykroyd actually really got. We're on a mission from God, you know, and uh, you're supposed to get back in the band. It was great. It was wonderful. But you know, that's not just a Blues Brothers thing, my friend. It's a Christian thing. And Jesus, in today's passage, wants each and every one of us to know that you have a mission that only you can fulfill in his kingdom. Because we're in the kingdom. We spent the last four and a half months talking about how we can deepen our relationship with God. And then we can deepen our relationship with others. Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which was very encouraging and very challenging, was it not? You know? And then we learned to love others the way Christ said loved us. It became from a vertical to a horizontal. And we learned some some. That was encouraging and challenging as well. And we're on a journey to love others well because of a love for God. That's what, that's what life is. It's a journey. And so because of that, I thought it would be good for us to look at the ministry manual of Matthew 10 to see, well, if we're going to go out on mission, what's it going to look like and what's going to happen? Because Jesus doesn't mix words. So I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Because what we learn in this passage is that we, as Christ followers, have a posture of compassion toward people, no matter where they are, no matter who they are. There's a posture of compassion. Two, that when we do this, people, some people will be offended. And three, we learn how we can get the power to live the life we've been called to live as we go into Pentecost, as we go into Trinity. And then we're going to learn three w- in three weeks, we're going to learn how to share our faith in a, in a way that in the 21st century actually works. All right? So that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. So I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 10 uh, on your devices or on your Bibles or in the back of your bulletin. First, God calls each and every one of us to have a posture of compassion from, chapter fi- from verse 5. To 15. At the end of chapter 9, Jesus has gone into the villages f- from chapter 3 through 9. This is what he's been doing. 
And he, in chapter 10, he begins to describe for the disciples the ministry he's calling them to do. Because this is what he has been doing. What's the message? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers. Cast out the demons. Verse 8, right? And it, these are just basic things that we're called to do, you know, healing, preaching, meeting needs. Why? Because in chapter 9, verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus looks at the human race, his default posture is one of compassion. All right? Yeah, I know he got mad at the money changers. Yeah, I know he in the Pharisees. But the default posture of God towards me, you, and the world is compassion. And notice what he called them. They are sheep without a shepherd. God calls everyone on the face of the planet, therefore, a sheep. And you know sheep. They are clueless. The most clueless of all human animals. They're always getting lost. They always eat the wrong things. And many of their problems are self-inflicted, right? Um, I saw a, uh, a Twitter post by Ed Stetzer, and I shared it on mine. It was the, a video of two kids in the Ukraine, eight and ten-year-old boys. The, uh, a sheep was stuck in the ditch. All you could see was a leg sticking out because it was a very narrow ditch. It, you would never see this in the United States because that's out of code, obviously. But uh, this ditch was about this wide, and there was a sheep stuck in it. So the kid got a piece of rope and, and pulled the sheep out. And the sheep just sprung to action, jumped over the ditch, ran, 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 jumped again, and boom, jumped right back into the ditch again. <laughs> and the kid, the little 10-year-old kid was like, you've got to be kidding me, you know? You, you hear them talking in Ukrainian. That's us. I reposted it under the, the Twitter. I put, there's no wonder that our Lord calls us sheep, you know? Many of our wounds are self-inflicted. Now, even with all that, we might be disgusted by sheep, we might make fun of sheep, we might hold our nose, but we don't hate sheep. And the same should be for our neighbors, wherever we are. No matter how foolish and stupid they are. My son Ben texted on our family thread this morning, We've been praying for his neighbor, Ray. His neighbor, Ray, is lost. And Ben and Abby have been trying to reach out to them. Ray attacked one of the neighbors with an axe and is now going to jail for three to ten years. <laughs> I'm proud of them for at least trying to reach out to them with a heart of compassion. Because that's, that's our Lord. No matter who they are, we reach out to people with compassion. So when Jesus goes about his ministry, he, he heals, he touches, he tells them the truth, and he turns now to his apostles and says, 
Now you do it, boys. In Luke, he sends out the 70, which is a picture. 70 is the number of completion. So the whole idea here, my friends, is this. Jesus is saying to his followers, now you share my mission wherever you are. So what do we learn from this? And when you read the text, there are some balances, aren't there? There really are some balance of ministry and applications for us. The first, you see, obvious one is the balance of attitude. You know, that we have, no matter who they are, a heart of compassion. That's the default setting. Yet, verse 14 says, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave the house or town. That's a radical thing for a Jew to say to another Jew. It was known in the Old Testament, if you went into a Gentile home, when you left, you could, if they didn't listen to the Jewish message, you could sh- they would shake off the dust from their feet as a form of rebuke, all right? But this is a Jew doing this to other Jews, okay? It was unheard of. And so, yes, we have the balance of compassion, but if a person doesn't listen to the message, that's not where your focus remains. Your focus goes elsewhere, joining the Lord at the work that he's doing around us. Number one, do we have that balance? Two, it's the balance of both word and deed. We come with the message, God's kingdom's here. Use that language. The kingdom of God is here. That was Jesus' message. And it's here, and it's worthy works to be used today. And so when we meet people's needs and we share the word, we're doing a word and deed balances. But what do people do? You have churches who are strong in the word, but yet never get messy with people. Then you have people, churches, which really get messy with people and never tell them the word. Because we would never do that, right? No, my friends, there's a balance. Both those models are wrong. It's a balance of word and deed, straight talking, yet compassion and service to others. Third balance. Notice there's, there's a balance of money, all right? He's, verse 80 saying, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse leopards, cast out demons. You received without paying, now go without pay. Just go. And the people to whom you minister will give you financial support, all right? Take, verse 10, no bag for your journey or tuna tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Other translations say the laborer deserves his wages. Uh, So on one hand, the person doing the Christian ministry, proclaiming the message, should be supported. And at the same time, they should not expect such support that they can go out and buy a Lamborghini or a yacht. One of the great blessings of being in the Diocese of Pittsburgh when I was going through the ordination process is me and Kimmy had to be interviewed by Bishop Duncan. And one of the things Bishop Duncan told us is, you know, Gene, you got a skill set where you can learn a lot more money than what you're going to do. Are you sure you want to do this? And my response was, Bishop, I, I can't see myself doing anything else. You know? Nothing wrong with a Ford. <laughs> right? See what I'm saying? It's okay. If you go into this lifestyle, it's not going to be extravagant. And finally, the fourth balance that you see here 
is that there's a place where he calls people to go. You're to go into the village, um, and you're going to go all villages, as many villages as you can, but yet while you're going there, you're strategic, verse 11. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. That word, who is worthy, is the God-fearers. Those are Gentiles who have been Jew Jewish converts. So you go into a village, you seek the synagogue, and within the synagogue, you look for the Gentiles there. Jesus is saying this. I, I didn't make this up, all right? So you find somebody who believes in that, and you hang with them. Go to places where people are receptive to you, receptive to your ministry, and stay there. Why? Because that person is a bridge. Those God-fearers were a bridge to both Jews and Gentiles right there in the synagogue. And so therefore, what he's saying is, though, although we should do ministry everywhere God calls us to go, we, wherever we go, God is always at work. We need to have eyes to see where he's at work. But make sure there's a strategy there's a, for what you do and why you do it. Don't just do it right off, crazy off the bat. All right? It's important for us that we go to where people are receptive. We move on if they're not. And all of these balances, my friends, are hard to strike. That's part of the loving God and loving others. It's a lifelong journey that we do as we're formed by God's word. So given all those balances, what are some applications for us? Well, the first thing that this should do for us is make us very humble. <laughs> Jesus says in verse 15, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Sybil put the emphasis on that town when she read it. It's true, you know. And what Jesus is saying, quite frankly, why? Because Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have the gospel of Jesus Christ. You do. The more God holds you responsible to act upon that knowledge that you have. It's important. Luke 12, 48, for whom much is given, much is required. So you're listening to another sermon, you're taking another Bible study, you're listening to that podcast. God asks us, what are you going to do with it? We're called to respond. Let's not be like Job's friends. You know, Job's friends knew the Bible, and they basically said, look at all the ways God is blessing us. We're good people. We deserve this. Everybody is going out having an awful time. We're living right lives, and look how God is blessing us. Isn't that great? What God wants to know is what are you doing with the knowledge that you've been given? What are you doing with that beautiful house you've been given? What are you doing with all the resources that I've given you? This is especially important for our little church leaders. If you're a team leader, you've gone through journey with me. James 3 says, let not many of you be teachers because teachers will be judged more severely. So we go in these great studies and we study the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, goodness and self-control. Well, God expects us to exhibit those. We start to be transformed, I hope. He expects us to be. It's important. And therefore, let's do that. And it's especially important for us leaders. 
And we need more leaders, by the way. <laughs> you know? What, what James is saying is count the cost now, all right? You know, God expects you to preach your life. You know, you're willing to do what you're willing, asking the congregation to do. Yeah, we're all saved, but God is our father, and what a good father and mother does with their kids, this is the man says, you have, you've been given much, therefore, you have a great responsibility, and that's humbling. The second application of this posture of compassion is there's no two-tiered ministry. Every single one of us have a ministry here. Every single one of you, me, have a ministry right here. And there's never been a culture where this is resisted like it is today. I mean, I don't, back when I was growing up 50 years ago, I never saw anybody but a dad or a kid mowing lawn. There was no such thing as a landscaping company. Now, it's not a sin to hire a landscaping company. Hear me, okay? It's okay. You can do that. But if somebody was behind on their lawn, the neighbors pitched in and mowed the lawn for them. You know, that's the way communities were. It's a fact. We weren't as mobile. Many people grew up in the same community, had extended family in the same community, and so our relationships now are shallower than they once were. And so there's never been a generation that's come along and said, well, I pay the professionals to do that. And then they apply it to their Christian life in the church. You know, don't ask me to get involved with the poor. That's for the experts. Don't ask me to, to be involved on Sunday morning, even though we need lots of ushers. That's for the experts. You know, uh, last time I checked, ushers aren't paid. There's no such thing as being an expert. It just means you're, you're friendly. You're a Christian. Don't ask me to understand theology enough so I can actually communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we pay Gene for. Actually, no. My job is to equip you to do that, according to the Bible. And Jesus is saying, when you say, don't ask me, he's saying, I am asking you. He did not let these 12 apostles go out into the Judean wilderness, you know, on their own. He sent them, all right? He didn't say, watch me. He spent the last year teaching them. Now, boys, you do it. Every one of us is called this. And our message is the same. The kingdom of heaven is here. Meet needs, share the good news. We're all called to it. Ephesians 2.10 says, you're his workmanship created by God for good deeds that he has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. That means that you are sent. I know it doesn't feel like you're a missionary, but you are. In the fall, we're going to walk through 1 Peter because 1 Peter is trying to inform the church, you're in a mission field. And it's a strange land, isn't it? You know, I can't tell you how many people over the past five years have said to me, I don't recognize this, this culture we live in. Well, First Peter does. And we're going to get encouraged throughout the fall as we walk through what Peter, how Peter encouraged the early church to live. And it's just normal Christianity. A consumer society says, I'm too busy. I'm going to hire a professional to do it. 
I come to church to get a little inspiration. No, you're sent. And you have gifts. You have spiritual gifts. And it's not just your spiritual gifts, but it's your age, your gender, your race, your life's experiences. Your life's failures can be used to help people know Jesus Christ. There's only some needs you can meet. There's only some hands you can hold. There are only some demons that you can cast out. You have to be involved. You say, I'm busy. Well, you've been sent. I'm not making it up. God says to Abraham at 80, 90 years old, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the world through you, and your generations are going to number the stars. Lord, uh, I'm old. Sarah's old. How are you going to do this? I'm God. Be quiet. Do what I tell you to. All right? It's going to be a great story. He says, okay. Where am I supposed to go? Just pack your bags. Where am I going? I'll tell you when you get there. Just be obedient right now. That's the Christian life. All right? We're all sent just like him. So therefore, that's the first part, my friends, heart of compassion. Second part is when we live this way, guess what? There will always be some who are offended by it. From verse 16 on down, it gets pretty sobering, right? Because no matter how compassionate you are, no matter how winsome you are, no matter what you do, you're calling people to the kingdom of God, therefore to repent and believe, and there will be pushback. But notice also, verse 23, when you are persecuted, right, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Right? Don't stand there and take a beating. Right? In verse 16, he says, be as wise as serpents and gentle as doves. In other words, don't be unnecessarily offensive as you share the good news with other people. Be careful. There's going to be pushback, but let the pushback be on account of Jesus, not because you're being stupid. Right? Verse 22 says, all men will hate you because of me. By the way, it doesn't mean that all people will hate you. <laughs> it means every, all around the world, there will be people who are going to disagree with this message. It's going to happen. And verse 23 says, if they're angry with you, don't just sit there and say, oh, isn't it great that I'm a wonderful witness for Christ as a martyr? No, there's no room. Jesus is saying, that's just silly. No. What he's saying is my offensiveness is pervasive and strong across the face of the human race. And if you identify with me, you will take some heat in your workplace, in your neighborhood, where you hang out. So why is he so offensive when you think about it? I mean, really, why is Jesus Christ so offensive? Well, the first point is he's offensive because of the enormous nature of his claims. For example, Jesus is always saying things like, uh, taking the divine name, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Which means casually, yeah, I was, I've been around since eternity. Jesus also says on the last day, the judgment day, people will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we come to you in your name? 
In other words, everybody on the face of the planet throughout history is going to kneel before him. He's the judge of the world. He's the creator of the world. Now, when you have claims like that, that pushes you, doesn't it? It, it? it pushes you to what the world would say is extreme, but this is normal Christianity. It's radical, but it's normal Christianity. You can't be in the mushy middle of so many people who profess the Christian faith in our culture and, and, and be effective, all right? It's either one or the other. And when you live for Jesus, it's considered radical. You either have to say, I'm going to live completely for Jesus. He has to be the highest priority of my life. He's the reason I get up in the morning. Every single decision I make, nothing I do without walking it by my heavenly Father. Everything I do is to please and honor Him. I either do that or I run away screaming. This is crazy. No way. Like C.S. Lewis said, he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. He can only be one of those three things. What is he? All right? And if he's Lord, the consistent response is to follow him in his kingdom. And when we do that, it seems like it's radical. Okay. It's a good place to be. When we say, I believe in him, and we center our lives in him, that's a more consistent response. It's a more consistent response to run away from him than to be in the mushy middle and to just be a mere churchgoer. See, Jesus is offensive because he forces us to what the world thinks is extreme. And that's radical. Another reason why Jesus is so offensive is because of his claims. Every other world religion says, here's what you need to do to reach the divine, right? Okay? Here's what you need to do. The five pillars of Islam. The eightfold path of Hinduism. Every world religion says, here's what you need to do in order to be saved. And Jesus comes along and says, you can't do that. You have nothing to contribute to your salvation. I have to do it all for you. You know, I'm not a teacher come to tell you how to save yourself. I'm a savior who's come to save you from that which you can't save yourself. The most insulting of all claims of every religion is just that. Other religions are offended by that. Every other religion gives you more credit. Christianity gives you no credit. If you think all religions are basically calling people to do the same thing, you're sadly mistaken. You're not reading. My friends, you haven't thought it through. I mean, throughout church history, the great Anglican evangelist George Whitfield in the 1700s went about preaching with John Wesley. You know, they, they divided over doctrine, but they came together and they, 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 they preached the gospel. And, and a woman of the aristocracy came to faith. Her lady name was Lady Huntington. And she was so grateful. She had discovered the grace of Jesus Christ, so she started to invite her other friends. Guess what? They didn't come. They didn't want to hear some commoner preach a gospel like that. Hey, no way. As a matter of fact, the Duchess of Buckingham wrote Lady Huntington and said this, It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. 
This is highly offensive and insulting. And I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank, high rank and good breeding. Why was she so offended? I don't want anybody to tell me that I'm a sinner. That I'm as, as sinful as those common wretches. I'm a good person. No, my friends, when we speak the gospel, it is offensive. And Jesus is saying, I'm not coming as a teacher to tell you how to save yourself. I'm a savior who's come to save you. And if you put all that together, what's really offensive is Jesus is not just a teacher, but he's God himself. Come to save you by grace. And if that's the case, he's the only way to salvation. He's the supreme way. Every other religion says, I'm a teacher. And Jesus says, no, I'm God. And because I'm God, I'm the way you find God. And if he is that, and we believe that, and as we profess that, that offends people. Believe me, here in the suburbs of Cleveland, in our comfortable people's lives that we live, guess what? People are still offended by this. It's saying you have to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved, and it's exclusive. And that sounds exclusive, but it's, it's, it's bound up in who he is. You can't escape it. It's, it's what he is. So therefore, let's apply this to our lives, all right? First of all, to the heat that we get, there will be some who say, well, that's just narrow-minded and bigoted. What do you say to that? Well, a couple of things. First, if Jesus is who he says he is, first of all, then you have to believe that. Christians throughout the centuries believe Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life, and the way to be saved. And not because we think all other religions are stupid, but because we find the evidence compelling that he actually was raised from the dead. Therefore, if you believe that, that doesn't make you narrow-minded or bigoted. That's just the natural flow from what we believe. You know, there are a lot of scientists out there trying to find a cure for Alzheimer's. And one day someone's going to find it. And when they do, you know what they're going to say? I found the cure. All these others are wrong. This works. That doesn't. Does that make them bigoted? No. He has the cure. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then he has to be the way of salvation. If he's not, then he's not. But the point is, those who follow him are not bigoted. Secondly, and the second application off of this, if you or someone you know says something to you like, well, that's fine for you, but just don't try to convert people. Don't, you, don't, don't share the gospel. Don't evangelize. Don't proselytize. If you hear somebody say that, you just need to remind them the reason that they think you shouldn't try to convert people is that they don't believe Jesus is necessary for salvation, right? They believe that. And they have the right to hold that view, right? We respect people with compassion. But when you tell the Christian, believe in Jesus, don't try to convert people, what you're telling them to do is the exact opposite of what you yourself are willing to do. You're telling the Christian that they need to change their mind. 
which is a form of evangelism. All right? Please realize that what they're doing to the Christian is telling the Christian that they can't do anything else. They can't do that to anybody else, which is basically what you're trying to do to them is change their belief. It's impossible not to say, I would like you to change your mind because the way I'm looking at things is better than the way you're looking at things. We do that every day. <laughs> All right? It doesn't make it narrow-minded and bigoted. So the last point, very quickly, how do we live this way? This is the manual. Okay, we get it. We've got to be compassionate, do all the balances. We get that he's offensive, and we're in the kingdom. We know that some people won't buy it. Some people will hate it, but not all will. We'll be strategic about it. But how do we do this? Two points. First of all, verse 19, recognize them. When we go about doing this word and deed ministry, God is with us. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That's exactly the experience for every Christian. There comes a time when you're doing God's work in God's way. The Holy Spirit just gives you the word. So you're formed by the word. The Holy Spirit gives you the word to say to people. Paul speaks about this in 2 Timothy 4. I encourage you to go there. He says, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. I may get fed to the lions tomorrow, but here I am in Rome. I'm writing to you, Timothy. Um, I have God. I can tell you that reality, and so do you. God is with you. And that's exactly what you have, and you need to know that. Second thing you need to know, and it's just as important, how can you be sure that God will be at your side? Look at verse 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of their house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? When persecution comes, Jesus is saying, I want you to think of me. I want you to think of how I was demonized, how I was called Beelzebub. <laughs> All that happened to me for at the end of his life, who was with Jesus? Nobody. He truly died alone. We all die alone at, one at some point, but the reality is he truly died alone because he was the one who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet even in our death, God will not abandon us. Why? Because Jesus took the aloneness and experienced the aloneness for us that we should have experienced. He gave his life for the sheep. And because of that, you will never be alone. So as you go about on the mission God has called you to, because he has, you're sent. Having a heart of compassion to your neighbors. And as you Take a little heat. Know that God will always be with you. He will never, ever, ever forsake you. And it is enough. And so take these assurances, brothers and sisters. And let us do the mission God calls each and every one of us. For each and every one of us is on a mission from God. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this wonderful word and this manual that you've given us. And I ask, Lord, as, as we apply these great truths throughout this week of waiting for the Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit, we're just reenacting it now, Lord, that, that we would come to you and we would see you move in and through our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, that as we come and we participate in communion, that we are preparing ourselves for the mission that you've chosen for us. And we ask you that you would help us to see that mission, and prepare our hearts for it, and minister to us in the communion. And now as we pray and apply these words by the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds and spirit, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.